0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about for and by women in the fields. On our final episode of 2017, and like, when did it become the final episode of 2017? This year has absolutely flown by. But on this episode, we will be discussing the recent decision by the Trump administration to downsize two national monuments in Utah, along with the potential to downsize monuments in other states. Joining me on this episode are Emily Long, Kirsten Lopez, and Jessica Irwin. Thank you so much for being here today. I know we're all super busy with the run-up to the holidays, so I really appreciate you all taking the time out to have this really important conversation. So to start off, Um, Can someone, I think, Kirsten, you offered, uh, give a quick overview of the monument situation as it stands today?
0: Yes. So what most people I'm sure have heard of is Bears Ears. Now, what exactly is happening um, isn't entirely very clear as far as popular media um, has been portraying it, mostly, I think, because... While it's a simple thing, people think it's more complicated than it is. Um, and basically, the Antiquities Act being one of the shortest acts uh, to do with uh, preservation, conservation, but it was also the first, um, is being used for the first time uh, to modify previously designated um, national monuments. So what Trump has done, he is elected to downsize two previous elected or um, appointed, uh, so not elected, two previously appointed uh, national monuments by Clinton and Obama, both uh, Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears. So there's a number of things going on, but the, the basic down and dirty is that these have both been reduced significantly, Bears Ears, by 85% um, down to just a tiny fraction of what it was designated as. And um, at the same time, our current Secretary of the Interior, uh, Mr. Zinke, has has written a report on the usage of the national monuments and has declared a number, um, I think, an additional five that may um, be up for further reduction or modification of their protections, and that includes, um, in my home state here in Oregon, the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument, as well as a number of others, um, including not just out west here, but I believe there's one in Maine that is also up for review. Um, and this is kind of beyond the review as it had occurred previously. This is going, okay, we've reviewed. These are the five that we think are needing to be revised, and that's what they're looking at doing. I don't know how much public comment is going to be taking place for those once they are um, kind of start to move forward on that. But that's the the nutshell version of what's going on right now.
1: Yeah, so that's a really great overview. Thank you for that. Um, And I know one of the things that has definitely been getting some media attention is the question of whether or not the decision to downsize these two monuments with the potential to downsize five more is actually legal. And there are some legal challenges that have been... um, filed one by patagonia Mm -hmm. um, and i believe another by a group of um, native american tribes and because the the 1906 american antiquities act is so short um i think that there are some questions about what's legal what isn't where is that all, all going to and i think Emily, I believe you did an ARC 365 episode on the Antiquities Act. So would you want to speak a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, so- Not to call you out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. It's like, uh-oh. Um, so yeah, the Antiquities Act, it, it is incredibly short. Um, it is our first major piece of cultural resource management legislation. And essentially what it still can be used for is the president is allowed to designate national monuments. And that has been done throughout history. There are very few presidents that decided not to designate um, national monuments. Now, it has happened in the past that um, monuments have been changed. And president. It, there's really nothing in there that says a president cannot change an already established monument. Um, But these changes that have been done in the past have been incredibly small and they weren't really contested in court. So they were really tiny issues where um, the monuments were changed in one way or another. The big issue here with the the act still is that there's really no language in there at all that says it can be minimized this much and it can really harm the act's ability for monuments to continue to be created um because what's the point if the next president can say nope we're not going to have that monument after all hypothetically congress said that um The president has this right to create and establish monuments but again there's really nothing that congress has ever said that the president can nullify or reduce to such a large degree um a monument because i mean it's one thing to take away a few acres adjust boundaries and that's essentially what's happened in the past but to decrease something by 85 percent that's extreme and that is what is unprecedented and what the big issue is with the Antiquities Act.
1: Yeah, so I think that another important aspect of the Antiquities Act is that while it doesn't expressly forbid a president from modifying a national monument once it's been designated, it also doesn't officially grant that authority either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's an issue. Um, that, you know, lawyers are going to have some debates over. Mm-hmm. And I know another um, bit that kind of has to deal with the wording of the Antiquities Act that has been brought up in media is that the Antiquities Act states that uh, presidents should protect important sites while using the smallest amount of land possible. And I think Bears Ears is one3 point. 3, five million acres mm-hmm. um, was what its designation was for. And there are a lot of people who say, well, like 1.35 million acres is, is a very large swath of, of land that, you know, essentially can't be used. Um, I mm-hmm. think it is also important to note that the original suggestion for the size of bears ears um, from the, the native American, uh, tribal Council that participated in the formation of Beers-, Beers was for about 1.9 million acres. So it's already smaller than what was asked for and is actually in line with what a lot of politicians were kind of thinking about and talking about at the time of its creation.
2: And if I may real quick, I'll, we have to also keep in mind there are a number, a number of parks, forests, BLM, etc., cetera, that have even more acreage. So it's not like this is unheard of to have so much land designated under a federal agency. There are other places with more acreage.
0: Well, and it's already federal land. And I think some people forget that. Like, it's not being taken away from private ownership. Sure.
1: It, it isn't being taken away from private ownership. There are people who live in the area, um, in Bears area, who were not a fan of the designation because of what they saw as the economic limitations of having that land no longer being available for grazing or mining or trying to, um, you know, extract crude oil mm-hmm. and and all of that.
2: And that whole big fear of government overreach in general. It's like, you can't take this from us. It's like, well, it was public lands regardless, but still that like big government don't come here.
0: Yeah. Well, and to add in, like, if there are sites and cultural um, places that are important in that area, if a company had applied to, say, drill for oil, they would have been rejected anyway based on the, f- the importance of those sites and of those cultural places. So, in essence, the way that I like to look at so the way that um, Bears Ears in particular, but a lot of these different national monuments um Work is kind of like you know this whole area rather than piecemealing um, and bits and um, and protecting just uh, like a patchwork bits and pieces. This is protecting the landscape, which is the sort of the important part. And, and the mention earlier of the uh, which is I think an important piece that is b- sort of the biggest um player in in all of the hoopla is the the minimum uh the smallest possible piece of land to protect well it's like well what are you what are you protecting um getting into other you know cultural resource law there's a lot of discussion on um areas of potential effect which can get into view shed it can get into um audio earshot like Protecting a a sacred site can also be making sure that there aren't, you know, you can't hear uh, drills in the background, that you're not having skyscrapers or um, uh, windmills in the viewshed of a place that is special.
3: Yeah. And the other thing, too, with the way that the Antiquities Act is written, and I think a lot of cultural resource law is written this way, um, is that it's intentionally ambiguous so that. By saying you know the minimum amount of land, without putting any kind of specifications on that, is that you can protect the viewshed, you can protect like the extent of the site, you can protect areas related to one site that are you know potentially unsurveyed. Um, but I think what's unfortunate in our current political climate is anything that is ambiguous is now just kind of being taken to the extreme other direction, where that's true the intent. Yeah of the law is not being looked at. It's just the letter of the law that they're looking at. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at what was happening in 1906 and why the Antiquities Act was written and the potential like timber impact at um, Yosemite and at Yellowstone and this idea that like, okay, we need to figure out a way to protect these places. The... Intent of the law was protection. And now our administration is going through and saying, well, the letter of the law, which is not (laughs) how any of this is really supposed to work, um, which is Mm -hmm. unfortunate. So very true. Exactly.
2: Because if we look at any of the cultural resource management laws, National Historic Preservation Act, any of those things, just like what you're saying, Jessica, the intent is protection, protecting cultural resources If we're looking at NEPA, protection of natural resources, blah, 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 all of that. And now all of these are seem to be swept aside because it's like, well, we don't really want the intent. We don't really care about the intent. What does it exactly say? So how we can get around it?
3: Well, yeah. and I think if you go look at other national monuments and other areas where there are national monuments, you're going to be hard pressed to find, you know, 15, 20 years on people are that are saying like, oh, we regret that this area around our home was turned into a national monument. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's the opposite, like mining and, you know, those industries that they're arguing in favor of like to build economic growth. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but- um, you know, they're, they're really short-sighted where, like, you know, if you sell an artifact, you can only sell it once. <laughs> but if you <laughs> want to go and look at an archaeological site or go look at a beautiful vista, like, it will be there. Um, and so that's, I think, the other part that baffles me is the, the short-sightedness of,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, ec- quote-unquote economic reasons for limiting cultural and environmental protections.
1: Yeah. Sure, but, but let's like, be honest right here Nothing that has happened in the last year Has given me any cause to think That there is anything other than Short-sighted, what-can-line-my-pocket <laughs> Kind of behavior going on Why would you say that? We say we're not, trying not to be overly put But like, makes me really angry
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah No,
2: that's very true There's not much, I haven't seen much logic In this past year
0: Hmm <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, not, not at all logic. And, and there has what is that
1: right? And and there has just been this entire overwhelming feeling of fear. We didn't like Obama, and there, well, I mean fear. Yes, <laughs> we didn't like Obama, so we're just gonna like undo everything he did mm-hmm. because you know want to mm-hmm. with with n- not necessarily a lot of thought about potential impacts mm-hmm. yeah. on that and even when the potential impacts are very clear um, like earlier in the year with attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act where it was very clear that millions of people were going to lose health insurance and premiums was going to go up and the majority and I won't say the entirety because I know that there were some Republicans who were opposed to it but the majority of Republicans basically said we don't care if millions of people lose their health care and potentially die as a result of this mm-hmm. so like, yeah, My belief in their empathy or caring is not.
3: Well, I also think they're trying to just like frame it in this really strange way. And it's been making me really furious every time I read an article that says like this obscure piece of legislation. And I'm yeah, like, it's like it's not obscure. It's not obscure. Yeah, it's and the, the shortest. That, yeah. Every <laughs> like mm-hmm. the majority of presidents have utilized it, Um, you know, like. There are at least, you know, one anthropology professor in any every university in the country. So I know that people know what this is, you know, like it's not <laughs> obscure. And like obscure is like some random tax code, you know, that's like 0.16.07AC, whatever. That's obscure. Like the Antiquities Act is not an obscure piece of legislation and framing it that way just undermines its importance.
2: Exactly. And so that kind of gets to the heart too, then. Why is this really happening? Is it because of this fear of government overreach um, from those who live in Utah? Is it that, oh, Obama did too much? Or is there other things going on underneath this? And a lot of articles have indicated that there is that fear that we're going to lose out on um, certain minerals, certain gas and whatnot, but we're moving away so much from that type of exploitation on the lands Landscape. and as you guys earlier earlier mentioned, we wouldn't be able to do that anyway because it is public lands, regardless if it's a national monument or not. And so it's just, what I find deeply concerning is like, well, what is at the heart of all of this? It can't just because, be because they're like, well, we don't really want this monument. It's like, but so many people did. And even those who weren't sure about um, Grand Staircase now have considered it like an, an essential monument. So. It's deeply concerning to me.
0: I think one thing with the mining, um, while the energy sources is something that we've moved away from and kind of um, progressed toward sort of alternative, these sorts of alternative energy exploitations, is the fact that there is a finite amount of these rare earth elements that are used for high technology, and we have those, but we can't currently mine them. And while prices are pretty high for the stuff that's coming out of China and Africa, it is uh, specifically certain um, parts of Africa, you have uh, this desire for opening up that kind of mining. And I haven't seen that voiced a lot, but I have seen it a couple of times and I can't remember the resources that I pulled that that I'm pulling that from but it is something that uh, should kind of be remembered that it's not just the energy resources necessarily. It's these other things that they're trying to not bring up because they're trying to keep it a little bit, I think, on the down low. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, um, and whether or not that sort of mining would have been able to take place even without the designation... um, like oil drilling wouldn't have necessarily been able to take place because it was federal land even without the national yeah. park designation. Um, I will admit to not being enough of an expert on that particular topic to, to speak with any any degree of certainty. Um, but that, that being said, there is historically many examples of federal land being used for mining and sometimes fracking or oil.
2: True. Um, Ex-
1: yeah. yeah, oil extraction. It's a
2: big issue at Chaco Canyon and they're getting people are very worried it's going to harm cultural resources at one of the most amazing archaeological sites in the United States. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think um, we are we are about at the end of our first segment. Um, and I can tell that we're, we're all just kind of like itching and getting so close to talking <laughs> about the, the potential <laughs> negative impacts of um, what using this land for mining or oil or like anything else could be. So I'm going to suggest that we we call this section and then when we come back we can really delve into the issues surrounding what could happen if this land was used for um,
0: other things. Brilliant. Sounds good. This network is supported by our listeners. members.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode so far, we have been discussing the situation surrounding the um, national monuments and their potential reduction. Um, when we left off last section, we were talking about some of the potential uses for the the land um, and why people might be interested in having the land declassified as as a national monument and moving forward I'd like to talk a little bit about what some of the human impacts of that are Um, so I know earlier we were talking um, in the break we were talking a little bit about uranium mining and that there that's like one resource that's been floated as maybe a thing to be done um, and Jessica, I think you had strong opinions that should be shared if you're willing.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, like my family, like my extended family has been personally affected by, um, non-disclosed uranium pollution. Um, I have family who lives in Arizona and one of the members of my family after this, you know, she gave birth to a child who had extreme, um, birth defects, um, like basically like her skin, like the way that skin functions just was like non-existent. She had lots of problems with organs and, you know, like just really like the most horrific thoughts you could have as, as a potential mother. Like um, and it came to find out it was because a uranium mine close to where they were living was illegally dumping it had gotten into the water supply. There was other kids and people who were getting cancer and all these different things. And so in this, um, you know, monument discussion, I've seen this argument that they want to potentially open up the Grand Canyon to uranium mining. And I understand Mm -hmm. that uranium is like a valuable resource that a lot of our weapons arsenal and defense like relies on it. And that's a whole separate issue that we don't need to get into. However, the argument that like you know, there would be no pollution and there would be strong, you know, protections and regulations to prevent this is honestly just ridiculous. Like, Mm
2: -hmm. they're,
3: you know, they told us the same thing with all this pipeline stuff. It hasn't even been six months and there's already been oil spills. I listen every day to our president talk about how he wants to get rid of regulations, get rid of regulations, get rid of regulations. So what makes anyone think that, you know, they're going to be and protected from this potential pollution, not just from uranium, but from really any of these mineral exploits, oil and gas, fracking, you know, like you name it. If it's about money going into pockets, like corners will be cut and the people who are going to be impacted are the people who live in these environmentally and culturally sensitive areas.
2: Exactly and it will travel outside of those areas as well. I mean, if you look at any kind of spill, it travels in the water. It's going to get elsewhere to places where people then may actually get up in arms about it. But
3: well, and not only does it travel in the water. If you're talking about the desert and the highlands and the like the plains, like those areas function off aquifers. And once mm-hmm. those contaminants are in the aquifers, like they're there forever. There's no cleaning up, you know, mm-hmm. from a polluted aquifer. Then that water is just gone. Exactly. Yeah,
1: and I think it's important also to point out that even when sanctions do exist, time and time again, it has been shown that the companies are willing to take the risk of breaking the sanctions and risk being caught because the settlement that they end up may end up paying for doing whatever they have done that was illegal. Could very potentially be less costly than um, having to pay for proper disposal of uranium mm-hmm. or you know other waste products because that is expensive because they are incredibly harmful so you have to make sure yes they're safe and like when that company is all about the bottom line and it's not necessarily measured in the potential harm and the cost to human life um. You know, even even if the sanctions were incredibly strong, you would still probably see mm-hmm. companies breaking sanctions because it it's worth it um,
3: in terms of their
1: bottom yeah. line.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I also think that the trust argument is a hilarious one. Just like little tangent on that point. Like people go on and on about like you can't trust the federal government. Like we can't trust them to take care of this land. Like what makes you think you can trust some like corporation to do it? Like, mm-hmm. I don't. Like, these two things do not equate, so... Mm
2: -hmm. There's a reason to have the regulations. (laughs) If we didn't have the regulations, companies will do whatever they feel like. That's why we need the regulations.
0: (laughs) One of the interesting things I've run across in talking to people is that there are people out there who do think that corporations care more about people than the government. They think that corporations will choose what's right for people. Documentation in history doesn't seem to help this situation in their minds. Like they don't believe it. It's been made up, whatever. Um, So that is a challenge um, that kind of goes into the anti-intellectualist Situation that's going on for a lot of the base of our president. Um, (laughs) And it's challenging um, in getting a lot of this stuff heard because I'm 100% on board with this fact that all of this that they're looking at trying to do are none of it's going to be good. I mean, You can't trust corporations because the time and time again, both in history over the past 200 years through the history of our country, as well as more recent history. I mean, you have, for example, the Dakota pipeline was a really great example of, you know what, there's no repercussions. We're just going to bulldoze it and get this out of our way so we don't have to deal with it because we don't want to go to court. I mean that was a lot of the the mindset um, of what happened there. So it's something that is I would like to see outside of. I mean, obviously, I don't think that these should be opened up for um, any sort of mining exploration. But for the stuff that exists, we really need to up the ante on whatever. Um, Uh, consequences and I think that point uh, that you made Chelsea earlier um, I think it was Chelsea I could be wrong Uh, you can cut that out (laughs) but I think the point made on the fact that you have I don't remember I lost my train of thought never mind
1: that's okay (laughs) <laughs> um, well, and you do have examples of, of companies, um, the, the oil and gas industry for decades, um, spent decades persecuting this one scientist whose name I can't remember, who was coming out and saying that like the leaded exhaust that's coming out of exhaust pipes on your cars is dangerous and like is going to harm your children. And they literally spent decades and so much money trying to shut this person down um, and all that this one individual was doing was trying to save people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, historically you do have so many examples mm-hmm. of companies not doing the the correct thing. On the opposite side of the coin, um, Patagonia has gotten a lot of press um, in the last couple of weeks because they have sued the government over their decision <laughs> to downsize fair's um, ears and there's an amazing um, interview with the the CEO of Patagonia and Teen Vogue and like of all places right? to Teen Vogue <laughs> they've been they, they've yeah. been so woke like it's like amazing. last year with the election and i'm just i'm like super stoked they're doing a great job um you know, talking about issues that matter <laughs> and not just being like a like, fashion magazine kind of thing. Exactly. And uh, if Team
2: Vogue would like to ever talk about archaeology and women's roles in it, we would love to join in that.
1: <laughs> I mean, exactly. Um, <laughs> but and, and we'll make sure that we put that interview in the show notes, you know, but, but they do actually care that the CEO has created a brand that cares about the ability to get outdoors, but they are also an outdoor brand. And the majority of people who work for them go to national parks, they go hooking, they rock climb, they whitewater raft, they bird watch. I mean, you know, whatever. So they are people who in their personal lives are going to care about the existence of these places. Um, so, so I mean like mad, mad props to them <laughs> is kind of really where I'm. I'm well, going and with also that.
3: with Patagonia, like, First of all, woman CEO, just like all male founders now have woman CEO. So get it. Like, that's awesome. Um, (laughs) But, like, this, like, they make a lot of money. um, But, like, they're very clear that, like, profits are not their motives. You know, like, they are starting this whole initiative of, like, reused product and recycle and you can get your stuff repaired if it breaks and, like, lifetime usage. But, like, with that, like, it is in their mission to preserve these places. And I mean, at the end of the day, like their product is to get you up on the mountain and to get you outside. So if there's no out, if there's no places to go, like their purpose is null and void to begin with, but it's nice and refreshing to see a corporation that is willing to be like, I don't need you like supposedly millionaire person who is in the white house, um, to bolster my own profits. Like, there's some of us who can exist on our own merits without your help. So I think that is one of the other things that I just really appreciate about that. And also, mm-hmm. yeah, like go Teen Vogue, like real issues, smart women. I appreciate it.
2: Um, yeah, for sure. And outside of just Patagonia, there's been a, a great response from scientific communities, from um, various companies, conservation groups, uh, even paleo- paleontology organizations.
0: Yeah. So, All this talk of Patagonia, I totally respect the brand and what they're doing is really great. But it's not the first time we've seen outdoor brands kind of take that spotlight. I mean, if you guys remember who our last secretary of the interior was, she was a previous CEO of REI. So you have they have like this, this purpose, this drive to be help preserve. It does help their bottom line, of course, but that's sort of not, that's like almost, I wouldn't say a side effect of their existence, (laughs) but (laughs) their drive to make profit is because they want to preserve these other things. You know, they could do a number of other, um, they could have done a number of other things to be more profitable when they first started up early, both Patagonia and REI and even Columbia have been around for what, 70 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's impressive. I mean, yeah, it's kind of one of those cool hipster things to go and do now, but it wasn't always that way. And that's something that they have, I think, because they started out in, a time when what they were doing was not so popular, their motives um, that get them their profit ha- are well-meaning because that's why they those companies started in the first place. And I think it's really neat to see them become more prominent because that means that those values are actually being held by more people in the populace. At least that's how I feel. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know about kind of the foundation of the the companies versus where they're at now because, um, like, Abercrombie & Fitch is an excellent example that was originally started as an outdoorsman store.
3: Oh. oh. And
0: that's definitely I not what it is now. did not know that.
1: Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, well, I appreciate the argument that you are making. Um, I I don't know in terms of when they were founded 60, 70, 100 years ago um obviously it can have a really big impact on the company and what they're doing but yeah it's not it can certainly like be said that the the people today scare. yeah um and and i appreciate the point that you're trying to make
3: um but regardless so they're suing the president which is awesome And then other people are suing, but the kind of, the question is going to be like, where are these lawsuits going to go? Like who is going to try them? Like how, like, you know, it's hard to see the direction that they're going to go to try and like to what aim to like restore the entire monument, just to say that what Trump is doing is illegal. Like, like where, you know, like what is the direction that these are going to go? Like I appreciate that there's these powerful companies that are getting behind it and like taking the lead and doing what we obviously are financially and resourcefully incapable of doing as archaeologists um but i'm curious to see like where it will go how it will play out and you know like how like i don't want to this is like not a very tactful way to say it but like what kind of beating they're going to take before they get they can get anywhere
0: yeah
2: Um, what's interesting with that, because there have been a number of lawsuits, uh, there are articles that have stated that it's highly likely that a lot of these lawsuits would be consolidated so that it would be a much stronger argument, um, whether or not that means there'll be still a separate tribal, um, suit versus all of these different companies and whatnot suit, um, I'm hoping that the consolidation would at least create a stronger argument, because if we look at the the history of some of these court cases when it comes to like environmental issues, unfortunately, it usually tends to side with government. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, if we're even just looking um, at the different legal suits that tribes have brought up against, uh, the government, they have won very few of them. Um, it's usually about, they win about 50% of the tribe when it comes to about environmental issues. And so, and unfortunately I don't have the information when it comes to general suits, um, for environmental concerns, uh, government wrongdoing or government, um, overreach, I guess, for something like shrinking the monuments. But, um, my big hope is with this, that at least maybe a stronger argument, but will be made by having such a large suit, including so many people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think that's hopefully, you know, if they consolidate, it'll have a stronger impact. I think there's also considerations to be had that extend beyond the environmental. And I'm not trying to say they're not important because they are, um, but as we've seen in the recent discourse around um, climate change and global warming in our country, there are certainly people who don't believe in climate change. Um, but some of the other issues that exist with trying to opening up these areas for um, oil drilling or extraction of coal or other sorts of minerals is that it actually doesn't put the U.S. in a great position technologically in terms of innovation, in terms of... Um, ability to compete in the, the global market. I mean, even, um, you know, countries in the Middle East who are one of the major exporters of oil are working on finding renewable energy sources, be it solar, be it wind turbines,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, or, or anything else, because they understand that that is the the tide that's current, that the tide is turning, that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. That's the, going to be the energy of of the future. Um, and for us to want to kind of recede and I use the term us as for kind of the the powers that be who currently control politics to want to recede into the energy sources of the 1950s and sixties is just so short sighted because 20 years from now, we're not going to you know, I mean, we're not now, but we will not, will not be at the head of innovation with renewable energy sources, and we will have to get that technology from somewhere else, and that's something that mm-hmm. we will have to pay for. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not concerned about the potential environmental impacts of doing this, there are going to be real long-term economic consequences for the United States as an entire country because we refuse to move forward with the rest of the world.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: that's my soapbox for
2: the day well that's an excellent point because i don't think we look that far into the future for these issues i mean it like uh you all said earlier it's just it's it's not looking at the long-term effects of what these could be it's easy for us as archaeologists to say like oh the resources will suffer or if we're looking from a tribal aspect sacred lands will suffer but if we can convince politicians hey our entire economy will suffer in the long term. Maybe that's what will change minds if we can't change hearts.
1: Right, and and as archaeologists, we do have. Um, I'm going to go with a leg up simply because so many of us deal with history in terms of centuries or millennia. So we are already in a in a mental space where we think about time in terms of a large time scale rather than a week or a month or a couple years. Yeah. Um, you know, which is just something that our profession provides for us. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily, you had really briefly touched on some of the um, indigenous um, rights issues um, that were also part of the, the Bears Ears designation and mm-hmm. the decision to reduce the size of it. We are at the end of our second segment, but when we come back, I would really love to dive into that issue a little bit. Sounds great. See you after the break.
4: Hey, podcast listeners, do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained, DigTech is your tech BFF, just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps, or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year. Go to www.digtech-llc.com tech dash concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year the yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear that's digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge and concierge is c-o-n-c-i-e-r-g-e to get going and go digital today call us before you make any decisions we've been there before
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have been discussing the recent decision to downsize two national monuments in Utah. Um, In the last couple of sections, we've talked about why people might want the monuments to be downsized, as well as some of the serious drawbacks to downsizing the monuments One thing that we touched on really, really briefly is the impact that it's going to have to um, Native American tribes in the area. Um, And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the legislation for downsizing the monuments included some languaging about restructuring um, some of the tribal involvement with um, Bears Ears that, you know, is probably not great, (laughs) Um, some, some people are trying to spin it in a good light. I, I personally don't think it's good. But um, Emily, if you want to kick us off with a little bit of an introduction as to what's going on with that.
2: Sure. Yes. Yeah, so what the administration wants to do is with the, the shrinking of the monuments is that they'll give the tribes co-management of the land. However, we have to keep in mind that a lot of the tribes already wanted about 1.0 million acres of Bears Ears to be protected because it's sacred lands. And co-management of any of that acreage may sound great, but it's really in many respects like a slap in the face because it, it's really taking um, a lot of the consultation, a lot of the things that have to be done away so what this legislation would do is that the president could personally he could select who the tribal members would be so it wouldn't be up to the tribes themselves um it would exclude any tribe that is outside of utah so even though there are a number of tribes that the reservation is outside of utah and we want to look at history, that's not exactly the tribe's fault. It's the government's fault. And they, their ancestors lived in the Bears Ears area and claim that as ancestral land, will they no longer be able to have any kind of voice for what is happening to that landscape? Whereas um, the law already stipulates that consultation must take place with federally recognized tribes um, that hold that area as important and any work that needs to be done there consultation has to take place. So that's taking away that consultation for anybody who does not any tribe that's not actually in Utah. Furthermore, it's treating the tribes more as stakeholders, as opposed to an actual sovereign entity. And so in these consultations, it's really Talking government to government, it's not just like public as public stakeholders meeting, and so again, it's downplaying the tribal involvement. It's downplaying what their role should be, which is far more important than what the government would actually give to the tribes. And in many ways, it's a it's it's disrespectful, and if we look at the history too of how Zinke went about looking at the monuments, he rarely actually talked meaningfully to the tribes. And so I think this is just another step in a really bad direction that could end up really harming um, the relationship with the tribes.
0: Yes, I'd also like to add that anyone who is under the thought process of uh, that type of co-management granted by uh, the president would be meaningful. Um, You do have to consider the fact that there are a lot of tribes in the states that do help manage uh, their ancestral lands alongside the uh, federal agencies. They work together in a lot of situations. You have um, a number of areas in the northwest here where the tribes are significantly involved In the management of rivers, fisheries, um, and so forth. So, you don't have to have an official co management. And, like Emily was saying, that wouldn't, not only would it reduce the um, importance of the role of all of the tribes that claim ancestry, but it would actually lessen the ability of the tribes themselves to uh, manage. In a meaningful way for themselves as well, um, outside of the the official consultation portion.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of this, um, as you mentioned earlier, Emily, like co management sounds great. Like it's a it's a positive sounding mm-hmm. word, and that there's been some some really effective um, PR work that's that's taken, you know, in marketing strategies that have been employed here and have been employed, uh, quite a bit in the last almost 12 months, um, Mm -hmm. to make something sound like something other than what it actually is. Um, and then unfortunately, like a lot of people are going to hear co-management and be like, oh, well, like that's a good thing, right? Um, without delving deeper, um, and recognizing, that it's it's not actually um, like you said earlier that the rights um, of these tribes are being um, infringed upon, and you can kind of already see that with there was the um, a Navajo woman I believe who was against the creation. I believe it's Rebecca so Benali. Like selected.
2: I believe. I could be wrong, but I believe that's right.
1: So, you know, she was um, appointed to to one of these councils by the, the government as kind of someone that they could point to and say, oh, look, but this person agrees with us. Um, and that with the structuring of the new um, co-management policies, that the the position of the tribes would, I mean, be lessened, but it would make them, you know, minority stakeholders rather than sovereign entities whose whose voices, uh, you know, deserve to be heard. And considering that some of the the language that's happened around the reduction of the national monuments is that these sites are being minimized because we're listening to, you know, the 150,000 people who live in or around, um, the, the two monuments and that we're, you know, listening to, to the little guy to then take these steps to actively ignore what a population that has been historically underrepresented, um, and has, you know, historically like terrible things has been done to them by the government um, just goes against all of that rhetoric that's really being used,
2: mm-hmm. and even for the population too. Like what you're saying with those who live directly around these monuments, there has been a big shift, then, and and has shown that the monuments are an economic boon for those who are engaged in um, tourism, um, like cabin or cabin um, canyon hiking, that type of thing, leading hikes and so forth. So there are a lot of those who still believe that the land is incredibly important and they consider it incredibly important. They just didn't want it as a monument, but it was already public land. So it's like, it really doesn't make in general that big of a difference, whether it's a monument or BLM, it just adds extra protection. And so The argument that's like, well, they're taking away the land. We didn't want it in the first place is ridiculous. And now we also have the tribes that want to have these lands protected. We have to be respectful and do the right thing. If these lands were already being protected as a national monument, we have the tribes that are saying the same thing. And we have scientists, we have um, large populations of people, conservation groups saying this place needs to be protected and respected, then it should be.
1: Yes, I agree Sorry. with you. Sorry, soapbox, that's uh, my rant. The, the no, it's, it's like a valid soapbox, but I think that we have seen uh, a large number of examples of the fact that the current administration doesn't yeah. really care what the majority of, of people want. I mean, you had um, Republican congressional members who went home over midterms and refused to hold town halls because they didn't want their constituents to hold yeah. them yeah because they were, they knew they were doing something your constituents didn't want um, so so while I like, completely agree with your argument I, like, exactly don't think it matters. Yeah,
2: they don't care. And that's what People makes it worse is like our constituents are supposed to be doing what or, yeah yeah, our, our exactly. elected <laughs> representatives
1: are supposed to do what our con- your constituents want. So like here's an idea. Exactly.
0: Vote better <laughs> 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 or yeah. actually vote. <laughs> well, and change for the sake of change is not necessarily ideal sure. either. Yeah. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's, I think, a lesson that is currently being learned by some people. Um, and the disrespect that the president has given to tribespeople of this country or in this that are located in this country. Currently, they're U.S. citizens. They are in federally recognized tribes. They have sovereignty as their own nations, and they're not being treated as such by the president that we have right now. And that is one of the things that drives me Mm -hmm. so up the wall. And if our (laughs)
2: listeners don't believe us, just look at the interview with the Navajo Code Talker's recognition and the press release with Trump and how he decided to have the whole thing in front of a portrait of Andrew Jackson. And, yeah. it's If you don't believe us, just look that up.
0: Yes. So, it's just one thing after another. It really... Is unfortunate because in during the Obama administration, of course, you know all presidents make mistakes, but the fact that he personally visited reservations and was the first president to really do so in some cases, um, it for for some um, tribes it was an amazing thing to see that there was some steps towards this really great respect, um, especially when, you know, he stepped in during the Dakota access situation. Um, and the fact that when Trump was elected, one of the first things he you know did was try and go ahead and finish this, you know, project. No one is, No one has, what was it? No one has objected. (laughs) We're screaming at the top of our lungs.
1: lungs?
0: (laughs) What planet have you been on exactly? Because I'm sure you haven't been here. (laughs) But he
1: was a stakeholder and he didn't object. And that's really all that mattered to him.
0: Yes. So, I mean, there's a whole litany of things. And that's, you know, there was a, a... comment made earlier of like, you know, this administration has not really been known to be logical, to really listen to the people, or to respect other nations, whether it be native nations here, or anywhere else in the world. So it's been, and I don't unfortunately see any ease on this but that just means that the rest of us have to kind of pick up and do our best to defend against you know what seems to be to be happening Mm -hmm. so
1: sure well as we're talking politics and who the president does and does not listen (laughs) to um one one thing that has also come out um during this discussion about bears ears is that This, like, may not have been something that he even really cared about, except that even prior to his election, um, there were senators and politicians, um, you know, and lobbyists from Utah who reached out to Don Jr., um, as he is kind of the outdoorsman and and the hunter-wilderness guy of the family, (laughs) um, to – I mean, like, I use that term loosely – he does like to kill things. Okay. How about we go into that? <laughs> he, okay. he likes hunting, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, and, and that is a way that he has been described um, in, in the press. But, you know, again, you have a situation where people have recognized that the way to get to Trump is through his children. And you have his children acting in capacities that – you know, are certainly not the norm, and in some cases are illegal. Um, yes, and that, I mean, there there are serious oh, yeah. issues with that, um, and this is just kind of another example of when I mean, that happens. Um, so this is my another political plug <laughs> for the day.
2: <laughs> oh, it's one of those things. I mean, if you if you can't tell already what our political leanings are, it, it, there there's an extra example <laughs>
1: right although um, i mean we have had more conservative people in the show and if you are a listener and you would like your viewpoint to be heard and you are more politically conservative bent than we are like, Ooh, please yeah. come join us on the show you can send us an sure. email at um women in archaeology at and we would be happy to have you on and listen to your perspective and speak oh, yeah. with you
0: we're nice we promise we do
1: want everyone's perspectives to be exactly heard
0: and that's really the goal um, in a lot of our stuff it, that we discuss on the show is to try and open it up to as many alternative views as possible. And that said, of course, one of the reason why our views can sometimes seem so homogenous is because we are all in the same field. <laughs> <laughs> and when we're discussing these issues, we feel strongly like in favor mm-hmm. of them. But I'm sure if you get us talking about something... I don't know what, something, I'm sure we disagree on something. Um, that that can be the next episode. <laughs> what do the women of archaeology <laughs> <do we>
2: disagree <laughs> on? It's like, huh? <laughs> Coming soon, 2018.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, and but any new perspectives on the stuff that we do discuss is always welcome. Um, if you feel like you're yelling at your phone or stereo or whatever you're listening to us on um like chelsea said email exactly ranted us record something and i mean especially <laughs> yeah. with, please please don't yell yeah. at us we
1: we're interested in
0: civil discourse. Exactly. yes yeah, civil discourse don't you can yell at the radio and then like take a deep breath and then send us a, a nicer <laughs> And I mean, <laughs> a rant. And in all honesty, too,
2: I mean, we are very concerned about the this monument situation. And so if you believe there are other aspects of this argument that should be talked about, we'd love to hear them. I mean, there are because it's really outside of our purview. I mean, it Bears the Ears apparently has a, a huge number of fossil beds and the paleontology organizations are terrified of what's going to happen to those types of things. Is that something we're as concerned about? We care. Just that honestly was not on my radar. Same goes for certain kinds of endangered species and plants, areas that um, are incredibly important for gathering um wild plants for the tribes we may not be as aware of because we are so used to essentially looking at dead things so um <laughs> we would be happy to hear more about the different things that makes bear's ears grand staircase incredibly important as well as all these other national parks that or national monuments that are under threat um, as well as any suggestions on what you think our listeners should do to help the situation um, as always contact your senators um, um, Congress is really the only power that can um, diminish national monuments. So talk to your senators, talk to your representatives, um, sign petitions. I mean, I may not feel like enough, but at least it is something.
0: Yes, and you can never, right. you know, if you if you do something, you don't really have that. Oh, I wish, or maybe if I had thought that haunts you for the next several decades you know (laughs) that that can avoid that 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 feeling
1: for sure um i i would also you know second and and third that (laughs) that everyone has voices and i mean by all means come on our show and, and have your voice heard here but also contact your duly elected representatives and um I know it's the, the holiday season and, you know, we all want to have a, a very happy one, but don't forget about these other very important issues that are happening that could have really profound long-term consequences for, you know, the entire United States um, and your fellow human beings who you should care about. <laughs>
2: yes. Um, happy holidays.
1: <laughs> well, and on, and on that note, we are reaching the end of our third <laughs> We do. We do want to say thank you so much for spending whatever part of the year you did with us. It's been an absolutely incredible year. Um, it was our first full year on on the air, um, as we only started in it was April of 2016. We've seen viewership numbers increase, and we've gotten some amazing emails from people and engagement on Twitter um, at our Twitter handle at Women You know, we love hearing from you. Please keep it up. We're wishing you and your families all of the best in uh, this holiday season and in the New Year's. So, happy holidays! Happy holidays! holidays. Yay!
4: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Please like, share, rate, and subscribe to the show wherever you found it. If you have questions, leave them in the show notes page at www.archpodnet.com slash WIA or email them to women in Podcast at gmail.com. The music is retrofuture by Kevin McLeod and his royalty-free music. To support the network and become a member, go to www.archpodnet.com slash members. This show is produced at the Reno Collective in Reno, Nevada. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.